On the night of Christ's betrayal, the final night when Christ was betrayed and ultimately arrested, uh, he did something remarkable. As he sat there on that last night, knowing what was to come, Jesus gathered with his 12 disciples. We actually discussed this briefly last week. One of the first things he did was that he sang a hymn. I love that. Just imagine Jesus with his 12 men, knowing what's to come before him, in the moment of his suffering, the moment when everything was about to break on top of him, he first decided to gather and sing a hymn with his men, with his closest men. He then did something that we've continued to do in church history ever since. He, he participated in the Passover meal. And we call it the Lord's Supper because Jesus applied new meaning to that Passover meal. But here before me, we see that I have bread and wine. And today, we're going to be celebrating the Passover, what was historically the Passover meal in a new fashion called the Lord's Supper. And it was instituted by Jesus Christ with his disciples on that last night, that night of his betrayal and arrest. What is the significance of this meal? What's the heart of it? What should be happening in the heart of a participant who's taking this bread and this wine? What does God intend to do in a Christian's life when they come into a local church gathering like this and participate along with everybody else? For a lot of folks, I know it's simply rote religion. It's kind of going through the motions. You come to church on a Sunday, you take the bread, you drink the wine, you go on with your business. But does God have more than that for us? I suppose he does. We're continuing our series of 1 Corinthians verse by verse. We've covered a lot of territory. Last week was a a pretty intense week as we looked at the differences of God's design for men and women, gender differences in Scripture. And today, we come to this dialogue the Apostle Paul wants to have with this early first century church in the city of Corinth about a disagreement he's having with them where they're abusing the Lord's Supper. And what I want to try to explain to us, if we take anything away from this today, it's this. The Lord's Supper is a holy mystery to be cherished and embraced by the church. Okay? Pretty simple. But let's get those words again. The Lord's Supper is a holy mystery to be cherished and and embraced by every follower of Christ, by the church. I'm going to try to show you that through three kind of movements through this text. First movement is this, verses 17 through 22. We learn this, the Lord's Supper is a significant symbol, it's a symbol of the church's unity in Christ. So today we're going to try to answer what's this meal all about, that's where Paul's going, where he's going. First thing is this, the Lord's Supper is a significant symbol. Let me reread this to you, verses 17. In the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Remember when I try to show you that this meal is a, a significant symbol of our unity. He says there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you for this? No, I will not. Now, notice in that language, two times, verses 17 and 18, he talks about them coming together, when you come together, when you come together. The communion meal is not something that we can just do on our own. This is not something you can just do on your own in your home. Now, we actually had, I put out lengthy resources during COVID about what communion looked like for that short period of time when we weren't meeting. We discussed that. But 
In a general sense, the communion meal is not to be done alone. It, it's this thing that happens when the body of Christians, when a local church family comes together. And we take this when we come together, verse 17, when we come together, verse 18. Now, the, the language is interesting, and, and it, might, it might be difficult for us to actually understand what's taking place in this verse if we don't have some context for us. He talks about one eating gluttonously and another getting drunk. Now, the amount of bread we take and dip in the cup, no one's going to be eating too gluttonously or getting drunk on the dip of wine that we take. So this must have looked a lot different in the first century. And it did. Now, it's not wrong to do it the way we do it by any means. We're taking the simple elements, which I'll walk through a little bit later, and commemorating those particular elements. But in the first century, the church was famous for something called love feasts, agape meals. And these love feasts, they were known for it. In fact, it was kind of, some people looked in on them and thought they were crazy and actually thought they were cannibals. This was the early church. They were accused of cannibalism because at their love feast, they did this thing where they ate the body and drank the blood of Christ. And outsiders just didn't understand what was taking place. But the meals were meals. It was a big, probably a big potluck type thing where everyone brought some food to share. There were particular dishes that were brought. And there's something about the first century that made these meals very different. In the first century, the common way for a big meal to take place, and by the way, that was, that was all over. We've already come across those situations many times in the book of 1 Corinthians when we talked about food being offered to idols. These big ceremonies where everyone was invited was taking place all the time. And the normal way that would happen is that whatever socioeconomic status you had, that gave you certain privileges at that meal. You got to eat first, you got the best wine, you got to have the best seat at the table. And what, if you were lower in terms of the eyes of the world around you, you got whatever was left. And so this church, would come, this church was coming together, and the social context was, we know what meals look like, right? This is how, we, we've all come from that place. Remember, the first century church in Corinth, most of them came out of that pagan world. They were familiar with how big meals were done. And now they're coming into the church, and there's this thing they're doing. They're celebrating the Lord's Supper, which in that day was a meal where the whole church was coming together, and they were dragging into that meal all the ways they used to practice having a meal together in the outside world. And Paul looks at them, and he says, hold on, hold on. Two huge problems here. Two huge problems with the way you're practicing the Lord's Supper. Number one, what does he say? He says, he says that you're despising God and you're humiliating others. So something about division around this meal, something about some people having more, some people getting to go first, some people claiming the best seat at the table, and other people kind of coming in and getting whatever's left, that's a disgrace and a despising of God. Wasn't it Jesus who taught us that when you go to a meal, don't take the best seat? Wasn't that Jesus' terms? He said, look, when you go to a meal, don't take the best seat. Take the lowest seat. Let somebody else put you in the best seat if that's where you belong. The Christian is the one who recognizes that there is an equal playing field between all, body, between all believers. Whatever your race, whatever your socioeconomic status, whatever your story, wherever you came from, however much money you have, however much money you don't have, how many degrees you have, whatever job you have, whatever influence you think you may have outside of the church or think you may not have outside of the church. This is so critical, and we've come across it many times. When you come into the church family, the, the gospel brings every person on their knees and saves every one of them in the same exact way. 
And because of that, there's this equality that takes place among the church, not just in theory, but in practice. This is why we, we prioritize the dinner table among all believers, because it's at a dinner table where you get to know each other as family. And this is one of the reasons this meal is so vital, because when we come together around this, this is a symbol of our unity. This is remarkable. In a room like this, there's all different kinds of people. Different races, different stories, different backgrounds, different religious backgrounds, different socioeconomic statuses. And yet all of us are going to take this meal in the exact same way today. We're going to rip a piece of the bread off. We're going to dip it in the wine. There, there's, no, there's no favoritism in here. Just as there's no favoritism with Christ. See, this meal must serve as a symbol of unity. And I want to say this. Um, one of the things we talk about when we take this meal is that if there's any sense of disunity in your heart, we have to deal with that before we come and take the elements. Actually, he gets to that later on in verse 28. Let me quickly read it to us again. Verse 28 says, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. If this meal is so vital that it should show our unity, if there's anything in a Christian spirit which is at disunity with their church, maybe, maybe honestly, let me, let me throw some things out that happen in the life of church. Right now, the members, you know, there's actually a, an issue taking place. We've been communicating with you guys about where there's some discord between members, right? And sh should somebody who has discord and has not fully resolved that be taking this meal? No, not yet. And, and that, that pain of not being able to take the meal should sit so heavily in a Christian's heart they, they should feel that. They should walk in knowing, I'm not pointing fingers at they, I'm, I'm saying whoever that is, if that's in this room, if there's disunity in your heart and you walk into this room and you, you see this, you say, I can't take it today. That should sting so deeply that you can't live out the Lord's commands for you on that week. That you would then run to reconcile with whoever you're irreconciled with in that moment. Now, let's take another situation. We talked about this again recently at another members meeting. What about an issue of gossip? What if you have been a perpetrator of gossip going forward in the church? This is common. There's not a church on the planet that doesn't deal with gossip one way or another. And Paul deals with it in the Bible. But let's just say that you've been perpetrating gossip in some way. You, you've, been, you've been furthering division between one person in the body and another. Before you're reconciled and you ask for forgiveness, should you be taking this meal? No. No, don't, don't come here if there's disunity. And feel the weight of not being able to take this meal. It should be heavy on your heart. You're a Christian. This is the Lord's Supper. It's a symbol of our unity. Number two, the Lord's Supper is a sign and a seal of our faith. I, I preached a sermon about a year and a half ago. We walked through this language in depth. I'm going to do it again today. This is historic Christian language. And I really want you to know this. There's so much depth to the, the, the sacraments, to the communion meal particularly, that I think we get lost in settling for very sh shallow Christianity. I want you to know the depth of what's behind here. The, the communion meal is a sign and a seal of your faith in Jesus Christ. Verses 23 to 26. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, 
This meal, what was Jesus doing when he gathered in that upper room with his 12 disciples? He was celebrating a historic meal. The Lord, he didn't invent the Lord's Supper on that moment. He was actually celebrating the Passover. The Passover was a historic Jewish meal that was a commemoration of the Exodus. So the, first, the second book in your Bible, if you've got your Bible, is called Exodus. And it's the story of when God miraculously delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. And every single year, faithful followers of God for generations were celebrating the Passover meal as a, as a commemoration of that time when, when God passed over the Israelites in bringing judgment on Egypt. And he delivered them. He, he set them free and he gave them their own land and their own name and built them into their own nation. That was the Passover meal. It was filled with all kinds of symbolism. And so when Jesus was gathered, what he was doing was the annual celebration. It was Passover time. Now, the, the thing about the Passover meal is that every element of that Passover meal has deep symbolism, right? And that wasn't lost on the, on the Jews of the day who were celebrating. It wasn't lost on any of the men in that room. So, for example, when they celebrated the, by eating the unleavened bread, right, the, the, the bread without leaven in it, that was a, a symbol for them of the haste which the Israelites had to escape Egypt. They didn't have enough time for the leaven to rise, that's how fast they had to run out of Egypt. And so every year they, they ate this unleavened bread in this ceremony as a remembrance. That's right, when they, ran, when they escaped Egypt, it happened so fast. Isn't that good news? God can deliver you from whatever you're facing like that overnight so fast that you can't even let the leaven rise. Isn't that amazing? Think about that. Whatever you're facing in life, whatever, whatever burden is before you, whatever you're looking forward and you're saying, I don't see a path forward. God can and does deliver like that, so fast that the leaven can't rise. And that's what they did. They took this unleavened bread. And, and then they took these bitter herbs, these bitter herbs. And when they put the bitter herbs in their mouth as a part of this meal, it was symbolic of all the bitterness of their slavery, their life in slavery. And they were eating, and, and they'd, they, they'd taste the bitterness, and it was meant to make your face kind of groan a little bit. And then it was made, meant to make you say, it was bad, but God delivered us from it. Every element of that meal was filled with symbolism. And then Jesus comes along, and he takes the bread, and he takes the wine. Now, the bread and the wine were a particular part of that meal. It was already part of it. There was a particular moment where the bread and the wine were taken apart, and they had their own meaning to it. Jesus then takes the bread and the wine of the historic Passover meal, and he fills it with the fullness of its meaning. He explains it in all of its depth that had been hidden to them up until that point. He takes the bread. Let me get this up here right now. We're going to be taking this after the message today. He takes the bread, and he says, this is my body. Now, what does he mean by that? This bread is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The bread is a symbol. Jesus looking forward to his sacrifice, his body hanging on a cross. Whenever you take this meal, what should be going through your heart and your mind is you should be seeing Jesus on the cross. And he says, this blood is, is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The new covenant in my blood, it's a symbol of his blood. So here's the Christian. The Christian comes to this table, and what should be happening is they should be seeing the bread, seeing the, the wine, and it should be pointing them as a symbol, as a sign to the body and the blood of Christ. 
And whenever the Christian visualizes that or meditates on that or reflects on that, immediately what should be happening is dwelling on your own sin. We did an exercise at our spiritual formation class last week where we did this exact thing. We said, see the cross. See the blood dripping down the beam. And know that that is the cost of the debt of your sin. That's what it costs. And that should not be lost on us any week. We should never come to this and not first pause and say, the cost of my sin is the death of the Messiah on the cross. That's the cost of it. There's signs and there's seals. The, the language of signs and seals, now this is important language. When we talk about it being a sign, there's two ways that the, the, these elements are signs. First of all, they're signs ceremonially, meaning the physical elements, the physical elements themselves, elementally, I mean, the elements themselves have, sign, have symbolic meaning. And then procedurally, actually what we do when we take them. Like when you watch me lead the Lord's Supper in front of you, when I break the bread and when you take the wine, that has symbolic meaning to it too. Let's walk through all of that. What does this mean, elementally? Well, first of all, he says in verse 26, let's read this. As often as you eat this drink, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now again, we just said this. This is what this is symbolizing. The, symbol, the symbolic nature of this meal is his body, his, his body hung on a cross, his blood shed for us. So there's our first symbol we have. It's his body and his blood. But then secondly, in verse 25, he says, in the same way also, he took the cup, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Now what's that language? New covenant language. Well, that's actually straight out of Jeremiah 31, an Old Testament prophet. And Jeremiah 31 reads this. He says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And so the communion meal, there's this celebration of the new covenant, which means that all of the promises that were made in the Old Testament that would apply to the people of God after the Savior had come fully apply to you as a Christian. This is remarkable. That means that when you look to the Old Testament and you read that and you read the prophet Jeremiah and then you come forward and you take this meal, that new covenant, that the law of God would be written on your heart by the work of the Holy Spirit inside of you, that day is now. They looked forward to that day coming and they wrote about it as if they they were saying, bless those who are alive in the day where they would see the fulfillment of this passage, the prophets of old. And here we are living in the fulfillment of it today. And, and you declare the fulfillment of that every time you come up. Do you see the awesome mystery that should be in your heart when you take this? The awesome kind of sacredness of this responsibility to come forward and take this meal? You're living in the days of the fulfillment of prophecy, and this declares it. Jesus declared it when he established this meal. Thirdly, it symbolizes spiritual nourishment. In John chapter 6, Jesus isn't commenting on the the communion meal per se in this passage, but listen to what he says. John chapter 6, verse 56 and 57. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live, as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Jesus, when he was alive, said, you need to feed on me. You need your life to be sustained by me. You need to eat my body. You need to drink my blood. 
And all through the week, the Christian is doing just that. When you, when you live the Christian life, when you're meditating on God's word, when you're praying, when you're being led by the Holy Spirit, when you're fulfilling his commands and community and living out the one another's towards each other, when you're taking all the gifts that God's given you, as we've studied in 1 Corinthians, whatever gift that might be, when you're taking all of it and you're applying it into the kingdom, you're feeding on Christ, you're living on Christ, and then once a week, or as often as we come together to take this, we're doing this in a symbolic way and remembering that life is much more than just food, just bread and water. Life, life needs more than that. We need to spiritually feed our souls on Christ as Jesus commanded us to, and this is a symbol of just doing just that. Now, ceremonially, ceremonially, there's also procedural symbolism here, not just in the elements themselves, but in how we go about it. Read, read verse 26 with me again. Look what it says. In verse, oh, that's in Matthew 26. Uh, verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, here's what Jesus did. And we're, we're reading the, the, the procedure Jesus did. On the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and then he spoke over them. Normally, when we take the communion meal, we try to mimic what Jesus has done. I take the bread, and I bring it up here, and I, I pronounce a blessing over it in exactly what Jesus had done when he had given thanks. We give thanks to God for everything that we have, and we particularly give thanks to God for this remarkable mystery, which is the Lord's Supper that we get to take together. That's a symbol for us of our unity with Christ and unity with each other. And so we pronounce a blessing over it, just as, the, as Christ did. And then he broke the bread. Now, you remember about a year ago, I started doing just this. This wasn't something we used to do, but then we studied the scriptures. We said, wait, this is what he did. He actually broke the bread before them. And that, that process had a symbol. So when you see me break the bread, what should be being formed in you is a reminder of his body that was pinned to the cross. The breaking of the bread is a symbol itself reminding you of his body on the cross and what he had to go through. And then there's the distribution of it. That's exactly what Jesus did. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body. And then he distributed it. They all took of it. They participated of that together. And so what we do in this, in this church is that we then come forward, and everyone takes of the bread. Everyone takes a piece of the bread off, and they dip it in the wine, and in that moment, this is really remarkable. What's taking place, and, and my wife and I oftentimes comment that we love that moment in the church service because you get to see everyone come forward and do the exact same thing. And that in and of itself is part of the divine mystery of this. Watching your brothers and sisters in Christ come forward and together, every single person is saying, yes, the new covenant in Christ's blood. Yes, he went to the cross for me. Yes, my story, a wretch like me, somehow God got a hold of me. He changed my life. I'm forever saved. It can never be removed from me. Every person that comes forward, when they rip off that bread and they dip it in the cup, you're looking at your brother and sister in Christ who has that same story as you. And when you think about it like that, it should almost bring you to tears, this process. And I'm trying to form that in us today. I know, you know, preaching on the communion meal, there's a certain sense of we're, we're going through instructions a little bit. And I think that's actually important for us because when we go through this and we don't feel that, when, when we see everyone come forward and rip the bread off, drink the cup, and then we're thinking about the Bears game that's coming on later, or we're thinking of what we gotta take care of, we, we're, we're, we're severely missing what Christ wants to form in us. There is this holy mystery of seeing other followers of Jesus and knowing he saved them the same way he saved you.
And their story needs to be known and heard, and you gotta get to know what their story is because it's remarkable. And, and look, not only that, but he's doing remarkable work in their life right now. He's still at work. And look at them, look at them coming and, 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 and declaring the new covenant in his blood, just like you. They need it this week, just like you need it. It should be this, this holy celebration. It's a sign and it's a seal. It's a seal, historic language. What does it mean for it to be a seal? Well, we use this language when we speak about the Holy Spirit being a seal. Jesus sent the Spirit that sealed us for our day of redemption. A seal in the old days, you can think of it like, you know, when you've seen like a wax ring a king would put on an envelope. The letter would be established, and then the king would send the, the letter out, but before, he'd, he'd seal it with his signet ring. And, and that seal declared that the contents of the envelope were true. It declared that whatever was inside the envelope was authorized, written, and given by the king. And so wherever it went, now it, the seal didn't make it true. It was already true. The king already wrote the letter. But for anyone who saw this, it was a declaration. This is of the king. When you take this meal, it is to function as a seal on your life of the faith you have in Jesus Christ. This is so huge. And if you get this, this is one of the most important things you'll hear today. It's to function as a seal declaring both to you and to everyone else around you, the king has declared you righteous in his eyes because of what Christ has done on the cross. Every time you take this meal, and everyone else you see take this meal, it's like a seal, the king putting his stamp of approval on you, saying, you are mine. I seal you with the promised Holy Spirit. This is historic language. Imagine for a moment, imagine if Jesus were to come in this room right now, Right? Just imagine, Jesus is to come in this room right now. All of us, right? And the first thing I would do is I would run off the stage because right? we, we would all need to be humbled in that moment. And we would let Jesus come forward. And every single person in this room, if your faith is in Christ, you would be, we would all do probably something similar to what's gonna happen when we enter into heaven. We're gonna fall on our knees in prayer and worship as we stand before the King of Kings and we realize that our thoughts on him were way too small, that he's even more glorious than we could ever imagine. Now imagine he walks in the room right now and he comes up to you and he hands you a letter and he says, you are officially declared righteous in the King's eyes. Would you not, would you not take that letter and read every syllable of it would you not own that letter and that would be the greatest treasure in your life? The king of kings putting his seal of approval on you, declaring you righteous in his eyes. Would that not be the, the thing that you would, you would most boast of in your life? The thing that you cherish more than every other experience in your life? Now in some ways, this communion meal is like a seal if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you've declared yourself, you, you, not you've declared yourself, if you've repented of your sin and allowed God to declare you righteous because of what Christ has done on the cross, then every time you take this meal, it's a seal in your life. It's God saying, be sealed. You're, you're justified in the king's eyes. You're certified because of what Christ has done for you on the cross. And now you celebrate this every time we take that. It's a reminder of this. It's a sign and it's a seal. This is lost on so many of us. The seal is meant to strengthen you for the battle. 
It's meant to be the sustaining power that goes about your, your week whenever you hit whatever the hardships you're going or you have moments of doubt or you have frustrations, whatever you're going through in life, when you go back, your seal on top of you, on your life, is supposed to certify you that God has you and that he's leading you through this because of what Christ has done for you on the cross. You've been sealed. It's a sign and a seal. Number three, the Lord's Supper is to be cherished and guarded. Now I'm gonna come at this a little bit backwards. What I first wanna do is I wanna walk through a handful of ways that folks um, misrepresent what this is supposed to be. Maybe some false beliefs people have around the Lord's Supper. The first one, I wanna, I wanna talk about the Catholic understanding of the Lord's Supper because I think they err greatly. I think they have this wrong. And a lot of folks in the Midwest, have, like myself, I, I was raised in the Catholic Church and I didn't, I didn't know anything different until I was 18 years old. So some folks still have a Catholic understanding of the Lord's Supper, and it's, it's quite faulty. Um, let me just say this. The Catholic understanding and the Protestant understanding of the Lord's Supper are at odds with each other, so much so that wars have been fought over this issue. I, I, just in terms of world history, wars have been fought over the differences of opinions on this. And I think that we need to be really clear on what the Bible teaches and how I believe the Catholics have gotten this wrong. I don't believe it should be fought wars over, but I want us to be clear on this. The Roman Catholic view is that the, the body and the, the, the bread and the wine actually turn into the physical body and the physical blood of Jesus. Not just ceremonially or symbolically, as we say they're a sign and a seal, but physically, as in elementally, there's a change in the properties of the substance so that it becomes Jesus. This is why if you were to go to a Catholic church, many of you maybe have been to a Catholic church before, the elements themselves are worshiped. This is what takes place in the Catholic service. The elements themselves are worshiped. And they're held in a place where they can be adored and worshipped. And then when they're brought forward, there's, there's, there's certain ceremonies that are specifically aimed at worshipping the elements. And they get that from the text. So they think, because it says, this is my body. This, this, is, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And so if you take it very woodenly, the text, very literally, you would get to a Catholic understanding, which is that this is his physical body. Now, I think this is significantly wrong, and unfortunately, it leads to idolatry. That's why this is a big deal, because we, don't, we only want to worship Jesus. We don't, we don't want to worship the wrong things. And when we worship bread or when we worship wine, we're actually worshiping the wrong things. Now, why, is, why when he says, this is my body, should we not take it as literally elementally, this is physically my body and should be worshiped? Well, because Jesus said a lot of statements where he was using clearly symbolic language. In fact, in this exact passage, he does the same thing. So for example, Jesus said, I am the true vine. Now, if you take that woodenly, it means that he's a vine. He said, I am, a, I am the door. Well, is he a door? Does he have a door handle? No, obviously, he's speaking symbolically. He means he's the way to heaven. He's the way to have access with God. That's what the, the symbol of the door means, Right? I am the true vine means we need nourishment from the vine. We pick this up later in the, in the Bible that we need, a, we need a feed on Christ. In this passage, he actually says, in the same way he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Well, if you take it overly woodenly, it's not the wine that's the new covenant in his blood, but the cup. His actual words were the cup. So if we're going to be really literal, the cup should be worshipped, not the wine. For these reasons, I think it's over, overwhelmingly clear 
that we're not meant to actually idolize and worship the elements, but they're supposed to be symbols for us of a deeper, more mysterious truth, which is that they point us to Christ's death on the cross. And we should not uh, create idolatry as a result of celebrating this meal. That's number one. The second mistake people oftentimes make is that they think that these are a means of grace. Again, historic language, this might be new for some of us, but they think it's a means of grace. What does that mean? Well, they think that when they take this meal, grace is being imputed into their life. It's kind of like this. We go through, through our week, and all week, we, we, we're aware there's little sins that we're accumulating in our life, Right? This actually kind of follows from some Catholic teaching, actually. It, it feels this way when you, when, you, when you come into church. And if I could just get to the communion meal, or if I could just get to baptism, then I could have all my sins washed away. And so every week, the process of the week is I'm accumulating sin, accumulating sin, accumulating sin, and then I take this, and it's washed away. I have a fresh slate. Then I'm accumulating sin, accumulating sin, accumulating sin, then I take this, and it's washed away. As if it's a means of grace. no. What's the only means of grace? It's faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. And the moment you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, every single one of your sins, past, present, and future, was forgiven fully on the cross. He buried it on the cross. He, he did away with it. He didn't shed his blood, getting victory over sin and death on your behalf, so that you would continue to live all of life accumulating more and more debt that had to be paid off in some other way. No, he paid it in full that's what your king has done. That's what the cross means. That means when you have a bad week, you don't need to, to race to the communion meal. You need to get back on your knees in prayer and say, Jesus, thank you. You've paid it all on the cross for me. I, 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 am, I am a far greater sinner than I would ever care confess in front of a room like this. But you see it all and you paid it all on the cross. And then this is a celebration of that. It's not a means of grace. It's a sign and a symbol of the grace you've already received. A sign and a seal. The great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones in England generations ago, he tells a story of a woman who came up to him when communion was being served and she came up to him and she said, Reverend, I, I have no right to take this meal. I'm far too great a sinner. And he could just tell she was, she was crushed over the weight of her sin. He didn't, even know, he didn't even need to know what the sin was. He could just look at her and see, I'm crushed. And can I tell you, I've had these conversations with some of you before and I, I'm so grateful that you trust me with with that kind of weight in your life. But this woman came up to him and just weeping, I'm too great a sinner, I could never take this. And he said to her, he looked her in the eyes, he said, that is the one precondition to being able to take this meal, is that you have an accurate assessment of the depth of the sin in your life. And that's a good word for us this morning. Before we come to this meal, before we take this together, have you taken the time to recognize the depth of your sin and the symbol of what it means that Christ went to the cross on your behalf? Do you count that cost? Do you weigh your sin and then leap for joy that Jesus went to the cross for you and that you can symbolize that through the taking of this meal together? Or is it just rote kind of mechanic, like, like just go through the motions? Lastly is the modern era error. And the modern error is that we just take this carelessly or callously, like it has no significant meaning to us. Just kind of go through the motions. What I've been saying, let me read to us verses 27 to 30 again. Listen to this language. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Listen to this. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. 
But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Meaning, if you have an accurate assessment of the depth of your sin. But when we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Okay, what's happening in that passage? One of the things we learn in scripture is that the wrath of God is poured out on all people um, as a result of their sin, either in hell, where it's poured out on them, or it's poured out on Christ on your behalf. Those are the two options. It's poured out on you in hell after you die, where the consequences of your sin are lived out in full, or it's poured out on Christ on the cross, and you receive a free gift of grace. That's one of two options that every single human has. And if you're in this room today and you're hearing a preacher preach on the communion meal and you're bored and you're looking to get out of here, I hope you hear this one thing. Listen, there's one of two options. We're all gonna face judgment one day and you're either gonna stand on your own or you're gonna stand underneath the blood of Jesus and this is the sign of those who have said, I stand underneath the blood of Jesus. Now, after you put your faith in Jesus, God continues to love you like a good father. He loves you like a good father. Nothing can ever take your your righteousness away from you. Yet, like a good father, I have three little girls, like a good father, we at times will be disciplined by our good father as a result of our sin. And what's the point of godly discipline? To restore us and to restore others who are being wounded by our sin. Now, this passage says that it's possible to have such a thing as sin sickness. Sin sickness. Sin sickness is when the reason that you are physically sick and have ailments and hardships is because God's temporal wrath, if you want to say it, let's not use the word wrath, let's use the word judgment over your sin is being released on you as as a healing measure in order to remind you of your own weakness and your need for salvation through Christ. And so when we come and we take this meal flippantly, listen to the weight of this. When there's no recollection of sin, when there's no regular repentance before a holy God, when we are just kind of dealing with sacred things as if they're not sacred, as if it's, you know, it's just, if we're just going through religion, we're just going through life, and here we are with the church, this sacred community that's set apart to worship Christ and be a light to the nations, to heal the nations. And when we deal with this place as if it's not sacred, and we just go about our day as if it means nothing to God, God says, and then you take this meal with everything I just explained to you about what this means and the joy of it, and you just flippantly deal with it, God has a way of correcting that in you because he loves you far too much to let you get away with that for for far too long. He loves you. He's not gonna let you go through that and be be robbed of the joy of Christ and, and then rob others as a result of your own sin. And so it's possibly sick and the reason for your sickness is you haven't repented. Now, that doesn't mean every sickness is a result of sin, but it does mean that some is. It goes so far as to say it's possible to die as a result of it because of the sicknesses that come in your life. Now, the last point I'm trying to make is this. We need to have a level of sacredness when dealing with these elements. We can't just kind of go through this and deal with it willy-nilly. We need to deal with it with clarity, with what the Bible says. Verses 24 and 25, let me read this to us as I close. 24 and 25, when he had given thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is a remembrance meal, and therefore it's for those who have been born again. That's what this is. Every follower of Christ, when they take this, they're remembering Jesus Christ and what he's done for them on the cross. In just a moment, we're gonna take this meal together, and I invite you to be in a posture of remembering what Christ has done for you. 
Take a Sunday. Take our worship. Take our singing together. Take the, the, the fellowship of the saints. Take meeting new folks who are in this room, all in a posture of saying, I want to remember who Christ is. I want to see Jesus building his church in the midst of this place. John Calvin the great reformer, he said these words when he was preaching on the, the Lord's Supper, and I, I feel every word of them. He says, whenever this matter is discussed, speaking of the Lord's Supper, when I have tried to say all I can, I feel that I have as yet said little in proportion to its worth. And although my mind can think beyond what my tongue can utter, yet even my mind is conquered and overwhelmed by the greatness of the thing. Therefore, nothing remains but to break forth in wonder at this mystery which plainly neither the mind is able to conceive nor the tongue to express. I agree with Calvin. I've tried to lay out for you some of the divine mysteries of what the communion meal is, and I've tried to exhort each and every one of us to never take this meal casually, but to understand it for the sacred mystery that it is. I pray you'll join me in that today. Pray with me. Father, we love you, and... Uh, God, as we reflect on this passage today, a bit of a passage that is a little bit more mechanics for the church, specifically instructions, how we should live things out and how we should not, I pray, God, that we would not deal with this casually, but in a way that is true to your word. Holy Spirit, move inside of us now. Anyone who's been thinking wrongly or dealing wrongly with this meal or with this church, God, I pray that you would humble us right now. Holy Spirit, have your way. Heal us. In Jesus' name, amen.